Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about being and doing. I've been thinking about the here and now and a vision for the future. I've been thinking about the space between where we are in the moment, accepting and grateful, and also deeply striving for something more, different, better, and how that all fits together. About our culture based on more, faster, better, and always working, trying, fixing, with the goal to be something other than what and who we are. I've been thinking about progress and improvement, ideals and success, purpose, belonging, and connection. And most of all, I've been thinking about leverage, automation, optimization, and outsourcing. My guest today is Ari Meisel. He's an entrepreneur, father, husband, lifestyle and health hacker and scientist. He's the author of two books, Less Doing, More Living, Make Everything in Life Easier, and The Art of Less Doing, One Entrepreneur's Formula for a Beautiful Life, and co-author of Idea to Execution with his leverage partner, Nick Sonnenberg. Welcome, Ari, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Oh, thank you for having me, Ali. That's a very warm, wonderful introduction. I appreciate that. So you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur, efficiency consultant, speaker, Iron Man, author, inventor, wellness coach, and achievement architect. So I want to start with the achievement architect. I heard you say that you'd been an entrepreneur since you were 12 years old. Uh, you went on to green construction, real estate developer, medical researcher, and co-founder of Leverage. But let's start, with maybe not at 12 years old, but how about college? Sure. So uh, when I was at college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I... I uh, graduated a year early with concentrations in real estate and entrepreneurship and minors in art history and psychology, and then went into construction. <laughs> I think that seems like a good preparation for all of that, for, for the future and for construction. You're going to have to deal with a lot of people. You're going to have to be able to understand historical things. It makes sense. I Well, I, yeah, no one's ever put in that context, actually, but you're right. That does make sense now. Um, so I, I, I was working in upstate New York on a project to rehab some old buildings from the 1860s into lofts. And basically for three years, I spent 18 hours a day learning and doing every construction trade imaginable, managing a team of 50 people and putting myself into $3 million of debt by the time I was 23. And, uh, shortly after that, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease because I had basically broken my body in every possible way. And... Uh, it was it was a particularly low point for me. Crohn's is an incurable disease, or considered to be incurable. It's an inflammatory condition that's autoimmune, and uh, it's not that really well understood. And I was put on a lot of pills and got pretty weak, and found myself in a situation where I was barely able to work an hour a day. Which, after having spent years working eighteen hours a day, was crazy for me. So uh, I went on this long journey of self-tracking and self-experimentation after a particularly low point in the hospital. I got off my meds after about four months and went on to compete in my first triathlon a few months later and then Ironman France about a year and a half later. And I felt like I had gotten myself a lot of the way better through experimentation with fitness and supplements and nutrition. But there was this lingering element that was harder to wrap my hands around, and that was stress. And stress is a known inflammatory agent in most people's lives, and certainly those with autoimmune conditions. So I wanted a systematic way of dealing with that stress, and the the best I came up with at the time was to create a new system of productivity 
which I would call less doing, as in less doing more living at the time. So, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, Ari, when you when you started in the real estate construction business, as you started and then went further, was it becoming more and more stressful? And did you have a plan with that? Was that something that was a vision and you, you decided, okay, we're going to remodel these, they're going to be green, they're going to be fit into the, the new economy? Was it approached with a plan at that point? Um, I... Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I probably should have had a better plan than I did because, as I said, I put myself into a lot of debt and it took a lot longer to sell the units than I originally had planned on. But I don't think a plan necessarily rectifies all this or solves for all that. Yeah, everyone has a great plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? So I. No, I mean, basically, look, I, I had this vision that I could create loss. I'd grown up in. Soho my whole life so in, in in Manhattan so I was very familiar with like loft living and what that meant but no I mean I basically thought you know look if you build it they will come and it was all, there have been several communities around the world where there's been like a Soho style development which usually starts with a derelict area of, an, of a city getting revitalized by artists first and then the galleries move in and then the retail moves in and then the people move in and it becomes something expensive and that's that's been, that's that's been happened many times. Uh, that I think I was a little early to do that where I did, but it that was the plan. I can imagine how stressful that is to to have a vision and something that you know is viable and that you know has worked and should work even better the way you're doing it in this improved model, and then to have the timing and location be such that it's just not working out. Oh yeah. I mean, that was, and the thing is with, with Crohn's particularly, like you're, I mean, well, actually any autoimmune disease, you're really at war with your own body. So it's like, you're getting attacked from every possible angle. So I want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with, with Crohn's and with your body. But, but first I want to set the stage with the company that you co-founded and that you're working on now, um, which is Leverage. And, um, it's best outsourcing service on the planet. Uh, what makes it better than the competition, virtual assistance for any task done efficiently. We combine the personalization of a lone virtual assistant with the bandwidth of a dedicated team. So let's talk a little bit about outsourcing, and then we'll move on to efficiency. Okay. You guys are outsourcing for a really broad spectrum of areas from scheduling and travel, bills and files, but all the way through to sales and pipeline and customer management and media and content. So, so that's a broad spectrum. Were there any reservations in diving in across the board that way, or was that the real intention of the company from the beginning? So we, we launched the company in 24 hours with zero funding as a reaction to a market incident. So there was a very large virtual assistant company that went out of business on a Monday morning uh, with a very, very sudden announcement. And Nick and I happened to be having dinner that night, which we had already scheduled. And we were talking about it and talking about what we felt they had done wrong and what we would have done differently, how we would do it differently. And then we decided, why don't we try this? And 24 hours later, we launched. So we, we really did this the opposite of what was out there. And that's not always the best strategy, but in this case, it worked out very well. And one of the things was that most virtual assistant companies provide a generalist. There's somebody who can do, and, and this is not to downplay the, the, the abilities of those people, but that's the sort of market that they serve. It's somebody who can do administrative tasks. So they can do travel and maybe some research and maybe some 
you know, Word documentation and stuff like that. And then there are plenty of services that'll give you your own graphic designer, an unlimited graphic designer, or coders or things. But there, there are. I, I mean, I, I, I don't believe there are any. But I, at the at the very best, there's few companies that sort of do the entire range. So we're like, well, what if, what if we just set that as our value prop? We'll do anything. You know, you can you th- you think of it. You want it done. We'll make it happen. Uh, and we knew that if we didn't have the talent in-house, we would know where to go to get it because I've been, me and Nick have, between us have probably 15 years of outsourcing experience anyway. So, yeah, I mean, we threw ourselves in the deep end and there, it worked out. We've never had a situation where we had to say no except for one thing that, that was not legal. <laughs> um, other than that, we've, we've said yes to everything from, you know, building a website and an app to arranging for a client to ride a grizzly bear while holding a bald eagle. <laughs> okay, I think that that illustrates exceptionally well the, the breadth of what you guys do. So your partner's Nick Sonnenberg, who also is a serial entrepreneur, um, was a high-frequency algorithmic trader uh, who wants to disrupt the way people live. And you got you had been a advisor on... Nick's earlier company. Um, and I'm wondering if at that point, had you guys thought about doing something together? I even saw in what the descriptor of that company, the word leverage. And I thought, had you guys already been thinking about that, about leverage across the industry and, and um, having access to, to industry specialists? Um, so we basically, uh, Nick had this so he was a high-frequency trader, and then he left that to, to build this startup, Calvin, which was a scheduling and productivity tool, and I was advising him on that. I We had met because I was teaching one of my productivity classes at a place called uh, General Assembly, and Nick was there learning coding, basically, to do this other startup, and that's how we met. I, I, I think he sort of, sort of walked in and thought it was interesting, and we became friends. So no, I mean... We, we'd been friends. He, he was a speaker at one of my events on, on managing your inbox. So like we, we were friends and we were both into productivity and Nick is a, Nick has a very interesting mind and it, our, our two brains, I think complement each other very well, but Nick, he's, so he was a high frequency trader for people who don't know. That's, that's the guy sitting in front of 16 screens in a, at a bank, like trading billions of dollars of stock in a given day. And most of the people who do that, I think, are basically mathematicians. Um, Nick is good at math, but what he's really good at is he's got this this different way and sort of obsessiveness about optimization and just making things work better at any cost. And so that's uh, that skills. And this is sort of a roundabout way of answering, like, have we thought about working together or something? I, I think that we had probably in some way or another, but it just hadn't fomented into the right opportunity yet and how did you guys decide to call it leverage so we were originally less duists which is an unpronounceable name for most people uh and then we were uh, and people would then call it like less doing ists and less doing assist it it, it was a really weird branding issue that we had we we, we were less doing assistance for several months but yeah the and truth that is, also kind of think do we want assistants who are less doing like <laughs> exactly no that's true and and less doing is not really what we're offering anymore and we work with a lot of businesses we work with individuals but we really want we don't want people doing less we want them doing as much as they as they are humanly capable of uh and enjoying it and loving it and doing their best and highest work so it's really not in line with what we were offering so we have a a, a 
one of Nick's really close friends, Claire, who works with us and does branding as a, I mean, she's a professional. She came up with the name Leverage because that's what we offer. And I, I, I love it. I think it's like a really intense name. You know, when I saw it, what I thought about immediately was leveraging the playing field that with the ability to outsource, you can remove so many barriers from your ability to succeed in whatever your endeavor is. Um, whether you don't have the connections or you don't have the time or you don't have the knowledge um, or you don't have the funds to hire a, a, a full team. Right, exactly. So you're leveraging your time, your money, your resources. That's simple uh, to get more done. And I always, every time I think of the, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. I don't know if it was Plato or Socrates or somebody, or no, 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 I'm sorry, it was Archimedes who said that with the right lever, you could move the world. And so you guys are providing the levers. That's correct. And that was actually what we would consider calling the assistance at one point, but nobody would know what we were talking about without the context. And so who is your client? I mean, you talk about being uh, for people who are overly busy and even people who maybe have a secretary and an assistant, but they need something more. Yeah. So one of the big differentiators with us is that we don't offer a dedicated person. We offer a dedicated team. And I, I think that that really serves people better anyway. You never want to rely on one person and have them be the bottleneck because people get sick, they quit, they get unhappy, they get bored, all sorts of things happen, and you're better off relying on the team. But more than that, one person has a certain number of hours that they can work in a given day, and they have a certain amount of skill sets that they can do well. Uh, the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none is great for certain things, but sometimes you do need masters. So if somebody wants to have... I mean, look, we have 110 people on the team and we specialize in this. I haven't found one person yet who is a great graphic designer and can do really good Facebook ads and can do Excel spreadsheets the way that somebody would want and is really good at travel planning. So this way you get access to everybody and everybody can do that for you. And so how do you guys choose and then train the leverage assistants? So we have, okay, well, as a general thing, I would say that anybody, one piece of advice I could give anybody with their business is that if you're going to hire people and train them, it has to be on the job training. You can spend all sorts of money creating really great training manuals and training programs. But the truth is, is no matter what happens until you see them on the job or as close to it as possible, you really just don't know how it's going to be. So we've actually created an entire simulated environment where they work on real tasks for us when they're training, but it's it's a it's like a separate like sandbox environment almost where they can really see what it's like to work with the company because it's so I love having the conversation with somebody who's been a graphic designer for 15 years and they're really expert and senior at it, and I'm not I would never ever put someone down like that, but at the same time it's like you're not an expert in our system, you know. So and it may take them two days to become an expert at that rate, but it's different here than it is anywhere else. And I, and I don't even mean that we're special or better. It's just different. Every work environment is different. So uh, we, we have a really cool training program, basically, where they're, they're do it on the job. They get to do actual tasks for me, Nick, and the uh, our, our uh, managers on the team. So it's essentially like interning, but they not only are doing the task, but they actually are doing it in the environment that they would do the task as a, uh, an actual VA. We don't do any active recruiting. Uh, people who work with us love working for this company. They post on social media about it all the time, how it's the best job they've ever had. We're, we're really popular with millennials because we actually provide what they want, which is ultimate job crafting and uh, impact in their work. Uh, 
but we have you know we have people who are in their 60s working with us and people in their 40s we have uh, army spouses stay-at-home moms retirees college students uh, so it, it, I couldn't give you like a one single profile, but we know what we're looking for at this point. And we have a really scalable hiring process where they have to do a YouTube video of themselves. They have to do a sample task when they're applying. Uh, and then there's an interview with just four questions that really tells us quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit more about hacking yourself. Um, you said you need to be able to identify metrics and patterns before you can start to adjust or eliminate activities or behaviors. And... Had you hacked yourself on other things prior to being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, or was that the real start of kind of active hacking? Uh, I, I had so I was always interested in productivity and efficiency, uh, and all, I mean even in construction, uh, like when we, uh, I'm trying to think. Of, oh yeah, so when when <laughs> when we renovated our so when my wife and i were about to get married we renovated a loft that we were going to be living in and we it was something that my parents had owned and were renting out to somebody and they were moving out 21 days before our wedding and i really wanted to be able to us live in this apartment once we got married so i gut renovated a 20 a 2000 square foot loft in 20 days uh which is like unheard of so even in construction i was always looking at how we can do this more efficiently and more effectively and, and with that, I think that's just like another example. I was going to talk a little bit about your relationship with your body because I know throughout uh, experiencing Crohn's and then I'll use the word beating it because that's what you used. Um, you had said you beat your body into submission and then um, tackled endurance sports. And again, not in a small way. You know, you started doing yoga, but you became a yogi. And I'm guessing you were probably doing one of the very intense styles of yoga. Um, and then started into endurance sports. And then the what used to be the pinnacle of that, I'm not sure it even still is, but Ironman competitions. So um, you said, I believe our bodies are machines like any other with the right amount of tinkering, noodling, and obsessing and assessing we can overcome the insurmountable, which, which you have done, it seems, in, in lots of areas of your life. What's your relationship with your body like now? Like, do you still see your body as this, this machine that sort of needs to be conquered in, in some way, figured out and then conquered? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, I have four children now, four young children. And I, so I'm not I mean, I, I'm not I'm being like unfair on myself. I'm not in the like the peak state that I think I could be right now. But I think given the constraints of work and family life, I, I'm doing okay. I think that my diet, diet could probably be more tightened up now. The difference now, it's not that I still need to like conquer anything. It's that I am way more in tune with my body now. So I can see the signals. I can, I can know what the feelings are and I can recognize them and change very quickly. So if I am eating badly for a couple of days for whatever reason... I'll recognize the, the feelings that I'll get from that and the lack of energy and the, maybe the moodiness from it and be able to shift course. Whereas before, that was not, I, I had no awareness of my own body. Well, so now kinda, I, I really know what things That's kind of what I was thinking about too. Like you're instead like maybe framing your body's kind of your friend and they're all working together, the body, the mind, and the emotions. And your body is trying to tell you stuff. And maybe when you were so stressed out, right, and so much was going on and you didn't have the capacity, like you're not listening, right? So it starts like, louder 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 yeah that's a very very good analogy for it and i i had heard you on um abel james show fat burning man and 
um, you guys were talking about the need to keep testing and um, and that you should expect new results. And I was just wondering, how often do you think people listen to shows like that and want from it a, a quick, specific answer that they can adopt and then like even just a supplement, you know, asking which supplement do you take? And then they're like, okay, that's the answer. And then so grab that and start taking that every day. I mean, I think that there are certain... So- regardless of what condition you're dealing with or if you just want general health, I think there are certain supplements that just because we live in the modern world and we have, you know, somewhat less access in a lot of cases to foods, the healthy food. I mean, there are certain supplements I think that people should be taking as a baseline. But again, the biggest problem with, with not, it's not just America, but a lot of industrialized nations is just really easy to take a pill in some cases. And, the people don't see that as a temporary solution as sort of like a ga- like a like a bridge so you'll you'll do that but eventually your body adapts nature always wins so unless you make a change to your lifestyle and 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 which is by the way very important why a lot of people misinterpret some of what happened to me and think that I'm against western medicine and medicine is terrible and all this stuff and it's not true i would probably be dead if i hadn't taken those me- that medicine and fortunately for me i used the time that i was on the medicine as a as an opportunity to make a change. Well, and also I think it is, and you know, not just America, but very much in America, this mentality that, you know, there is a answer, there's a way to be, things are good or bad, and that it is then that's definitive, not the idea that, okay, we're, our bodies are constantly changing, the environment's constantly changing, what was true yesterday may not be true today, and, and not only may not be, but probably isn't. Right, that's right. And so... Um, do you feel like now, you know, you have your, your mind and your emotions and your body, like there's this continual conversation going on and that you may be more attuned to that as well? Yeah. uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I think I'm, I'm much more able, like I said, to sort of like check in with my body and have that awareness and know, uh, if I slept well enough and I'm also disciplined enough now to know, like, if I, like, I, I try to go to sleep at about midnight every night. Um, and even if I'm like into something interesting or I'm working on something, I know enough to be like, no, I need to stop and go to bed because, you know, I'm a baby might wake me up at six in the morning. I, I just, I like, I'm able to turn my mind off that way and, and, and get to it. Uh, I'm not as disciplined as I'd like with food, but some of that is just convenient sometimes. And, you know, if my, if my, if my son, one of my sons is, this morning, actually this happened, uh, we're driving to school and they were having, they each had an apple and all three of them didn't want to finish their apples. They're like, Daddy, you eat it. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll eat it. You know? At least it wasn't chicken tenders and fries or cold mac and cheese. No, no, although to be completely fair, I probably would have said yes to that too. So we're going to take a short break and then I want to come back and really drill down a little bit more on the idea of efficiency and also a little more about leverage. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I am speaking to founder and CEO of Leverage, Ari Mysel. We'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported radio. So we're back. Ari, I want to talk a little bit more about the idea of being effective and effectiveness. And you had said, I'm a huge believer in setting restrictions that force us to be more effective. And so maybe just a working definition for you of what it means to be effective. Sure. So being efficient is, well, okay. So do, being productive is doing more. So more, more productivity is just doing more. 
being efficient is doing things well and being effective is doing the right things. And so, so for efficiency, you kind of need a combination. Yeah. I mean, you, you, efficiency is one thing is that using your time really well, using your resources well and getting hopefully some sort of multiplier effect from what you do, but being effective is directing your energy towards the right thing. So I heard you talking about in one way being efficient was ordering products on Amazon, sort of planning out, you know, you talked about batching, cooking in batches, and then planning out products you might need and setting up an order that comes routinely. And so I want to look at efficiency and being effective in a broader scale as far as how that affects maybe day-to-day personal life, but also kind of how we're living in, in the world. So do you think about that? Are you doing a cost-benefit analysis? Are you thinking, okay, this would be great. There is maybe more of an effect on the environment as far as shipping and packaging. When you're deciding um, what activities you're going to choose to become more efficient and effective, are you weighing a lot of factors or are you pretty much focused on one idea of where you want to get to? No, I, I, to me, it's like every like step by step every day in every way. I'm always looking at how I can do things better. I mean, I, and the other thing, the restriction thing is very important for me. I think that, that actually setting artificially restrictive limits on yourself is probably the number one thing you can do for productivity because everybody who's listening to this radio station now is or to this, this interview is in a state of abundance, whether you, you know, whether you think you are or not compared to most of the world, you are in a state of abundance. And the problem with that, that freedom is that our brains don't work very well when we don't have constraints and we just have to sort of free form it. So if you have too many options, you have no options because your brain just doesn't wrap your head around that. And we have more time to do the things we need to do than we realize. And you can do more with less. So if you tell yourself, it's Parkinson's law, basically. If you tell yourself that you need an hour to get this done, you'll take an hour. And if you give yourself a half an hour to get it done, you will probably still get it done. And if you give yourself two hours, it will probably take you two hours. So if you set artificially restricted limits on your time, your money, or your, even your space, it forces your brain to ideate and become more innovative. If, if I could tell you that the average American spends $173 a week on food, so maybe you fit that category and maybe you decide what happens if I can only spend $100 a week on food? What happens? What do I have to do? Does that mean that I have to cook at home? Does that mean that I have to eat one less meal a day? Who knows? But it makes you start to change things and look at it better. So I'm always, any, first of all, anything that's repetitive, anything that I do more than once, that's something that I need to make more efficient. Uh, but all of the things that are a hassle that I'm not good at, those are things that I want to make more efficient and more. And, and I, I can tell you plenty of examples for those things. And then there's a positive way to look at this too, which is what's something great that happened to me in my life or business in the past week. And why was that really important to me? What do I need to do to make that, to progress that further? And nine times out of 10, that one step is something that can be outsourced or automated in one way or another. So I guess what I'm trying to get you to answer in addition to that is the so that I can dot 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 like the right <laughs> the kind of where your values are around being um, more productive and and more yeah. efficient. So I as I said I have four small children. I I really try to I, I mean they're really sort of the driving force in my life. I don't believe in a work life balance. I believe in a work life integration. So 
I want to improve in every way, every day, whether that's as a better father, a better friend, a better husband, a better business person. And the only way that I know to be able to do that is to give myself as much time as possible to use my brain. <laughs> and again, it's not that I have some special brain, but everybody has some sort of genius in them. And most of the time it's being obfuscated by something in their life that's preventing them from doing it. So just giving yourself the space to use it the way that you want, great things will happen for you, your life, your family, and the entire world, in my opinion. So I think that there's a much greater mission here with making people more effective. I think that it empowers the future of work. I think that it empowers people to feel like they're having impact and working on things that are meaningful. And so the, the twofold answer is that it's so that I can do more of whatever I want. And usually that means coming up with something innovative for the business or doing something with my family. And I want this to have, I want this to serve an example basically and have myself be a constant guinea pig to show that there are other ways that you can do things for other people. And it's tricky because you're sort of saying, well, you got to free yourself up from all of the doing parts so you can do more, but it's a different kind of doing, right? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> I was also thinking about, because you're a parent, you spent time that, that there's, there's been a lot of research about outsourcing as far as parenting, right? Like people that have someone else that does a lot of the, maybe they drive their kids or from different places or they're different, different parts of the parenting job. And, you know, a lot of debate about where the relationship happens within that, that a lot of people will say, well, you know, maybe when you're, you're driving your kids to school, that's when, especially when they're older, they're teenagers, they maybe start unpacking their bags, right? They start talking about something that's really important to them that maybe they wouldn't um, otherwise, but in this place where maybe there's some kind of banal activity going on, one of you's doing the dishes or something like that, that these conversations happen and life starts to happen. So I guess that's what I want to explore a little bit, the idea of of what we choose to outsource and how we choose what we outsource and how that then frees us up to do the things that maybe are really more of an expression of the life we want to live and the, the self that is, is more authentic. So I, people a lot of times uh, have the misconception that I outsource everything and I don't uh, at all. I'm, I'm actually going to be picking up. I mean, I, I drop my kids off at school every morning and I pick them up every day from school, which is why I work from 9am to 2.30 every day, basically, so that I can do that. Um, I do dishes at home, and I, and but I do a tenth of what my wife does, but I do dishes, I do laundry, I help with I do <laughs> groceries, and I do a lot of things that you certainly could have people do. Because in the end of the day, to me, I think that there's a benefit. It's almost like mindfulness meditation for me at that point. And actually, there's been there's a couple of really funny studies about how washing the dishes is like the gateway to mindfulness meditation. Uh, but I also think for, for me, it's important for our kids to see that and be a part of that and know that, you know, you're not always going to be able to have these things just sort of done for you. So for me, the outsourcing in, in, in home life comes more with like signing the kids up for camp because I have to fill out the same 12 page form three times to get my boys into camp. So that's something that I would certainly outsource. Uh, I have a pretty efficient process for us getting groceries using Amazon Fresh and some automations with our virtual assistants that just sort of make groceries show up every few days uh, because to me that's that's just less important. Uh, so it, it, if you don't like doing something, that's that's a, a good reason to not do it if you can make that 
not be part of your life. But don't just assume that everything that's not your core ability should just be done by other people because there is a benefit to working with your hands. There is a benefit to being involved in some of these things sometimes just so that you you don't like lose touch with what's real. Having said that, if it makes sense for your life to have someone drive your kids to school, you should do that. And if it makes sense for you to have a personal chef cooking meals for you every night, that'd be great. Personally, I'd love to have a sushi chef like that live with us. That would be my like one of my dreams if I had a, a genie. <laughs> but it, it is no one size fits all, and you, there's always there's never going to be a situation where you're going to outsource everything. So it, it's kind of like what will serve you the best and give you the most peace and ability to, again, use your brain. And if you're going to use your brain just to be able to read stories to your kids at night, that's fine if that's what you want to do with it. But some people just don't have that luxury because they're just too overwhelmed with things. They can't turn their brains off. They can't stop. So let's talk a little bit about your idea of the external brain and also your 80-20 rule that I know you use in a little different way than other people might think of it. Yeah, so the the external brain for me is just having some way to dump things out of your mind in, in any form possible. And the most basic one, which I don't recommend, but the most basic one would be a notebook, of course. And it's one of the best ways to sleep at night is just to get ideas off your head. The better version of the external brain is something where actions can be taken once you've gotten those ideas out. So whether you're using some tool like Evernote or Trello, if you're getting a whole bunch of ideas out at night and then a virtual assistant, for example, or somebody else can work on them, or they just have some place to sort of live and foment, you, you shouldn't keep those in your brain. We have very limited working memory and you can't be using that for things that aren't really going to serve you because it just, it, it, it gets very frustrating very, very quickly. And I mean, literally we have like such a short attention span now. I think that we, on average now humans have the same attention span essentially as like goldfish do, which is a few seconds. So you have to uh, have some method of getting these ideas out of your brain. And, and, and whether that's uh, you're in the car and you take a picture and that goes to something that then gets saved and uploaded later, or you have a notebook in every possible nook of your house, or in my case, for a long time, I had something called Aqua Notes in the shower, which is a waterproof post-it notepad because everyone gets great ideas in the shower and you don't want to lose those. That's fine. Um, so that's, that's the external brain. And then the A20 rule, most people see the A20 rule as the sort of allocation of resources in terms of 80% of your outputs come from 20% of your inputs. Or in human speak, for example, 20% of your clients might be responsible for 80% of your income. And the 80-20 rule would tell you you should focus on those 20%, which I agree with. But the 80-20 rule for me is really just a constant reminder to be tracking and identifying the steps involved in the processes that I go through on a daily basis. Because there's so much unawareness in terms of how we do the things that we do. Our brains are trained to be lazy in terms of the energy that they use and to create shortcuts wherever possible. So anytime you can stop yourself and say, why am I doing this the way I'm doing it? And realize that the average person has 23 steps involved in paying a bill. And how can I make that more efficient and not have that be part of my life or automate it completely out of my life? So we have to stop and do the work and get in that mindset that doing something because that's how you've always done it is a very bad reason. Well, and it seems like that's kind of the platform of your mindset in regard to, to most everything, and especially with, with figuring out um, what was going on with your illness and then in creating the company as far as 
paying attention, right? To stop and look and notice what's going on, what's happening, what are the actions taken, what are the consequences, what happens if you shift something or change something, and how does that change the result? Yeah, I mean, constantly being in that, I, that, that mindset of experimenting, really. It's like, what if I tried it this way? <laughs> Which, again, it takes some work. And also, like, that's another area where there's a balance, right? Because maybe in the, the last few minutes, we'll talk a little bit about that, about the idea of being and doing. And especially in our society, it's funny you mentioned that we have so many choices. My daughter was doing a persuasive essay on something, and she chose exactly what you said, that when we have so many choices, we have 40 brands to choose from in the supermarket as far as cereals go and toothpaste, that it really is more stressful and not a benefit. And I think in, in our society in general, there is this sort of war going on in our culture and then internally with people as far as being and doing and the idea that more is better and, and more faster further. And that kind of eats away at people's sense of their self-confidence, uh, being able to just be authentic and as to who they are. Uh, so it seems that you found that balance that in a way the leverage and the outsourcing is allowing you to be more authentic and more time to go um, after the things that are really what are valuable to you and inspire you. That's right. Yes, absolutely. That's, I, I, I mean, honestly, I couldn't say it better myself. And is it something that you see as, you know, you, you do a lot of coaching, you do a lot of talk shows, um, podcasts. Is it something that you see in society? Is it not something that you think is, is a real problem with this, this idea of sort of people trying to find an answer, find, find a guru or find something that is, is going to solve all their problems? No, of course. I mean, that's, that's really common. And the thing is, is a lot of people, they know what they, they know that they need this stuff. And sometimes they know what they need, but they need someone to tell them to do it or even how to do it in some cases. So, and that's fine. I mean, whatever that gateway ends up being to make you actually make that change. But a lot of times it's inter the, the information is readily available, but again, people don't have the time to, to get it together and call it. And they don't need to spend the time necessarily doing experiments that won't work if somebody else has done them for them. Someone like you. Yeah, someone yeah. like me. <laughs> like you. I was wondering if you had read um, Tim Hartford's book or you'd seen it. It's called Messy, How to Be Creative and Resilient in a Tidy-Minded World. Yes, and, of course. And so how does that set with you? Is that just like, oh, okay, that's not really me, that I'm, I'm not? Or I mean, is, it, is that okay in your life too? Like, are there areas where it's okay to be messy and, and not have a plan and not be, be efficient or maybe even effective? Yeah, of course. I don't. I don't know how effective I am as a parent, honestly. I mean, sometimes you know, it's it, it, with four kids, it's like just uh, crowd control and herding cats. So, I, but I don't know if I need to be effective necessarily as a parent. I'm there with them, and I'm doing things with them, and I'm focused on them, and you know, hopefully that ends up. You know, that's a long, long play experiment, if you will. So, um, no, I don't need to, and I'm also. I, I think that I take on somewhat different personas when I'm working versus when I'm at home. So it's, it's, I, I, I run pretty intensely when we're working when I'm working, honestly, and then I'm able to sort of let go a lot more when I'm at home and that serves me well. 
And, and so f with leverage, who would you like to see using leverage? Like, is it something that anyone can use for some aspect or element of their life to make it more efficient? Oh, no, I mean, anybody. We really, I mean, we work with a lot of businesses, but we work with individuals as well. Since we can do anything, uh, I, I think that, I mean, we haven't met somebody yet that we can't serve in some way or another. So if, if we're helping, I mean, we just planned a really complex trip to Patagonia for three weeks for a family of four. And that's something that they would have had a lot of stress dealing with otherwise. And it allows them to, you know, not only not have to deal with it, but have a better trip than they might have been able to do themselves. So that's something too. keep in mind is that sometimes it's not just about time or money. It's about quality in some cases because somebody really might be better at doing it than you are. And so what's the intention? Like when you guys were at that restaurant and you decided when you and Nick were at the restaurant, you said, oh, we could do this and we could do it better. What was then the next step, the idea of the intention for the company? Like, how are you changing the world? Well, two, twofold. One is that, you know, if we're doing a thousand hours a week of work, we're, that's a thousand hours a week that these really interesting, not, not just entrepreneurs, but just interesting people are not having to do. And the multiplier effect of what those people are able to do with that thousand hours to me is kind of mind boggling, honestly. You know, so if, if we have clients who are brain surgeons and cancer researchers and uh, military people, I mean, so the, the things that these people can do with their time that we're giving them back, I, I think is kind of immeasurable. And the other side of it is, again, I think we're powering the future of work. I think that we, we allow people to work when they want, where they want, on what they want, which is unique. And a couple of the people on the team are going to do six figures this year doing that, which doesn't exist in our world. So I, I think that that's twofold. Is we're powering the future of work and we're allowing people to really focus on what they're best at. All right. Well, Ari, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me. So, Ari, I got to say that last thing you said, I, my husband has a, a company called Liquid Space. Uh -huh. um, yeah. which is like oh, Air, wow. Airbnb course. for office space. And I was like, of that's course. almost exactly the same thing. We're powering the way, <laughs> we're changing the way people work. And I, I was going to ask you in the interview, and I, I didn't get a chance because I don't know if this would be a compliment or not. I mean it as a compliment. But I see you as part of this new Brat Pack, like the Brat Pack of, of the 2000s with Lewis Howes and Tim Ferriss and Abel James. Like you guys are, you're these uber athletes, you know, health gurus, motivational coaches. And I, know I saw the new term lifestyle entrepreneur um, that are like attacking these life challenges and then you write a new book and then you've got this podcast and you've got this product. Does it feel that way to you? Do you feel like you guys are these, you know, the, the cowboys of, of the Westerns walking down the street with your, your six guns? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful. Well, thanks. Thanks again for having me. <laughs>